Good morning, church. Before we feast on God's word, let's pray one more time. Pray with me. Father God, grant that we would know and understand your grace as we submit ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My father-in-law is one of the most generous people that I know. And no, I'm not just saying that because he gave me his daughter's hand in marriage. (laughs) Believe it or not, I was actually friends with my father-in-law before I was friends with my wife. But one of the first ways that I noticed his generosity was with his time. As a single guy eager to come alongside older, godly men to learn from their example, uh, he was one of three guys who came alongside me and discipled me and counseled me, was a good friend to me, invested in me. Uh, Not only that, he was also generous with his money. As a single guy who didn't have a whole lot, he would often take me to lunch. And quite frankly, I didn't pay for a single lunch. So he was generous with his money. He was also generous with his friendships. So I used to work in college ministry, and part of my job was to to raise money to be able to do my job. And my father-in-law was kind enough to to vouch for me, to put me in touch with with his friends uh, as I sought to expand my my support base. And his generosity, it has only increased uh, since I married his daughter. Why is my father-in-law so generous? Well, I wasn't bringing anything to the table. I, I didn't deserve his generosity. It's because God has been generous towards him. A sign that a person has truly received God's grace is that they extend that same grace toward others. Grace. God's kindness to the undeserving. And in our passage for this morning, we see God's amazing grace on display through a parable. And as we've seen, as we've walked through these parables through the book of Matthew, Each one is revealing to us something about the kingdom of heaven. And in this one, we learn something of the value system of the kingdom of heaven. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16. That's page 825 in the Pew Bibles, page 825 in the Pew Bibles. As we always say here, if uh, you do not have a physical copy of God's Word to be reading for yourself at home, feel free to take that one as a gift from us to you. We would want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's Word for yourself daily. Again, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. I'll read that for us. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour 
and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Unlike our world's value system, uh, which is based on getting what we deserve, what I hope we'll see in this morning's text is that the value system of the kingdom of heaven is based in grace. This is our main idea for this morning out of this text. The value system of the kingdom of heaven is based in grace. And we'll see this idea drawn out by looking at two different recipients of grace, the idle and the undeserving. Those will serve as our two points for this morning. And so may our closer look at this parable of Jesus lead us into further amazement of just how abundantly gracious our God really is. So let's begin with this idea of God's grace for the idle. This is, we see this in verses 1 to 9, God's grace for the idle. A parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The earthly aspects of these parables are meant to point to spiritual realities. So here's the answer key. The master of the house is meant to represent God. The laborers are meant to represent the disciples. And the denarius is meant to represent salvation. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, is like a master who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Again, this master who represents God, he goes out. Uh, don't skip over this glorious truth. Uh, salvation starts with God's initiation. Not you and I. Look at the repetition throughout the first six verses. Verse 1, the master of the house went out. Verse 3, and going out about the third hour. Uh, verse 5, going out again the sixth and the ninth hour. So there we have it twice. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour he went out. On five different occasions, the master of the house went out to pursue these laborers. He left the comforts of his home to find those in need of work, those in need of, of money. Church family, can you see it? Like the master, God graciously pursues us. We are the laborers standing idle on the side of the road. We are those who were once dead in our sins and God in his grace has pursued us and given us life in Christ. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, Christ came to earth to pursue and redeem a people for his own possession. By his spirit, he calls people out of death and into life with God. This is the case for every Christian in this room. God has pursued us. And he continues to pursue us through his sanctifying grace. Christ has died for us, and now his spirit resides with us. Convicting, uh, comforting, encouraging, shaping and molding and making us more into the image of his son Jesus until we see him face to face. And because he has pursued us, we pursue others. And first, we pursue one another. 
we pursue one another. Members of Oakhurst Baptist Church, you are called by, both by God and our church covenant to pursue one another. Just one section of our covenant says, we will walk together in Christian love, exercising an affectionate care for and watchfulness over one another. Uh, this requires us actually knowing one another, being intentional with one another, being concerned not just with each other's physical well-being, but even more importantly, concerned with each other's spiritual well-being. Enduring with one another long enough to see patterns and weaknesses and to go through trials together. Friends, this happens in the context of discipleship. Intentionally seeking to do spiritual good to one another. If you are a member of Oakhurst Baptist Church and you are not in a discipleship relationship, if somebody doesn't know you well, your joys, your sorrows, your temptations, your strengths, or you aren't in the process of getting to know someone well, and I'm serious about this, please come find me after the service. I will happily, myself or any of the, of the other pastors, will happily uh, set you up with someone to grow in this discipleship relationship with. It is that important for your spiritual well-being. Our God, he puts on display for us all that he requires of us. As Christ came down from heaven, we also pursue the lost. Uh, sharing the good news of the gospel, calling those who do not know Jesus to repent and believe in the risen Lord Jesus. Whether it be the stay-at-home mom who's sharing the gospel with her little ones or the college student on campus sharing the gospel with classmates or the professional sharing the gospel with a coworker in an uptown office, we are commanded to pursue the lost and share Christ with those who are around us. This is at the core of what it means to love your neighbor. But not only do we see God's gracious pursuit of his people through this master of the house, we also see in verse 8 and 9 how graciously God provides for his people. God provides for his people. The master's pursuit led to his provision. Each worker was promised a denarius. Uh, a denarius was a typical day's wage in first century Israel, and the cultural expectation was that you work a full day and you get paid a full denarius. And that's exactly what we see happening in these first set of verses. Uh, consider the time frame in our passages. A typical workday in first century Israel began when the sun came up. I think for some of us, we'd be like, whoa, when the sun came up, really? Imagine starting work the moment the sun came up into the air. Uh, roughly 6 a.m. would have been that time. In other words, the first hour, right? In verse 3, we see another timestamp, the third hour. And if we're doing our math correctly, that means we're looking at 9 a.m. And the master continues to go out hiring workers in these three-hour increments, the sixth hour being noon, the ninth hour being 3 p.m. But then he breaks this three-hour rhythm. And in verse 6, we see he went out at the 11th hour. So that would be roughly 5 p.m. Now, a total workday would have been 12 hours ending at 6 p.m. So if you're tracking with me, that means that those who were hired at the 11th hour worked no more than one hour. Those who were overlooked as they stood in the marketplace waiting for somebody to give them a job, uh, those who maybe forgot to set their alarms and therefore showed up late and missed out, or those who were just maybe outright lazy and had no intentions of getting up early to be at the marketplace, still were provided a job. Friends, how, how kind of this landowner. These laborers, they didn't have steady jobs for one reason or another, yet he provides work for them. 
so they can survive. You know, it was these jobs that would provide money, right? Denariuses or denarii, whatever the plural is, right? So that they could, they could actually eat. A denari denarius is meant to represent salvation. Don't forget that, right? The gift of eternal life. As this landowner freely and generously provides a job, so our God freely and generously offers salvation to all who would repent and believe in him. Friends, this is the, the root of our rejoicing. Our God offers salvation freely, not based on when we started working. He offers without price to, to the Andrew Kellers of the world who heard the gospel and was always in church, all the way to the Joe Mazellas who came to saving faith late in life. Praise God that our salvation is not dependent upon us being at the right place at the right time, but rather on a God who through the Holy Spirit enters into our lives without asking permission. Amen? Our God, who invades our lives with his grace, granting us the gifts of faith and repentance, allowing us to rise, go forth, and follow him. In verses 8 and 9, evening comes. Uh, the work day is over. The owner of the vineyard tells his foreman to call the laborers in from the vineyard and pay them what he promised, beginning with, uh, with the last up to the first. You know, it would have made most sense to pay those who were working the longest first, right? That would be logical, I think, to us. Yet we see the master do something very intentional here. He pays the 11th hour workers, those one hour workers first. You know, we could speculate as to, as to why. The text isn't explicit about that. But what we do know is that these earlier laborers, they, they saw this exchange and they had something to say about it. Over the last four or five weekends, Chelsea and I have taken on the back-breaking, uh, forearm blasting work of creating flower beds in our front yard. In this process, Y'all, I have become well acquainted with North Carolina clay. And I have grown tremendously uh, in appreciation uh, of those who do landscaping as a full-time job. Uh, between the heat and then fighting rocks every single time that I dug my shovel into the ground, there were several times where I would look over at my wife and say, I must really, really love you to be out here doing all this. Now, although I wasn't paid to create these flower beds in my yard, I would imagine that if I was, and then somebody came along on that last day when we filled everything in with mulch to make it look nice, basically the easiest part of this entire process, if it came time to get paid, and then this 20-minute mulch spreader guy comes and gets paid the same as me, yeah, I'd have something to say about it. Oh, yeah. You know, are you confused? <laughs> is, this, is this some sort of joke? I'd be mad, quite frankly. Why? Because I was the one working hard because I was the one bent over with the sore back, making sure, you know, insert plant name, whatever we were planting, uh, was planted correctly. Because I was the one hauling wheelbarrows of dirt back and forth across my yard, not them. This would have been an injustice. I don't think I'm alone in reading this parable, hoping that I wouldn't have responded like these full day laborers, but the reality is I would have, I really would have. And I think that you would have too. The master was paying the same wage to those who worked all day as he did to those who worked for one hour. He was being gracious to the undeserving. And when we map the spiritual elements to this parable, onto this parable, this is what we see taking place in verses 10 to 15. 
Point number two, God's grace to the undeserving. God's grace to the undeserving. The value system of the kingdom of heaven is based in grace. You know, in Christian spaces, we talk about grace all the time. We sing about it, we pray about it, we read about it all over God's word. And I wonder, I wonder if, if because it's such a frequent topic, as it should be, if we've forgotten just how amazing it is, how surprising it is, as sinful human beings, that God, the God of highest heaven, the one who is supremely holy, would have anything to do with us, that a holy and infinite God would enter into time and space as the person of Jesus Christ to live and die and bring us to God. That is utterly amazing. I know we hear this every Sunday, and and we need to, but, but this should make our knees hit the floor and our hearts sing to the Lord. Friends, God's grace is surprising. And we see this surprising effect in verses 10 to 12. I'm going to read those verses for us again, verses 10 to 12. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Uh, Sadly, the surprise that these earlier laborers express here isn't the appreciating variety, right? No, this surprise, it actually leads them to indignation. They feel that they have been wronged. But what's at the core of this surprise? Look at verse 10. They thought, you know, assumed, expected even that they would receive more than the late workers. When they didn't, verse 11, they they grumbled. Uh, The reason for this grumbling, the 11th hour workers had been made equal to them. The ones who've been breaking their backs through the middle of the heat of the day are being treated as equals to those who were there for one hour. Not to mention, and in the cool breeze of the late afternoon, the sun's going down the very time that those late workers are actually working. This is an injustice. Church family, the root of this grumbling and complaining is the same root of all grumbling and complaining. It's pride. It's pride. Pride is the antithesis of grace. Verses 10 to 12 serve as a warning for us against pride. And in these verses, we see pride manifest itself really in two very particular ways. Entitlement, which leads to complaining. Entitlement is pride that presumes it deserves the best. The laborers presumed they were dealing with a master that valued what they valued, a master like them who would be just according to their standards. And so they assumed what we would assume, that they would get paid more, or at least those other guys would get paid less. The result is grumbling against the master, despite the fact that he had been faithful to pay and provide work for all. Think of your life. Is there any area in which you are tempted to presume or, pre- or assume that God will do what God will or won't do? I'll say it again. Think of your life. Is there any area that you're tempted to presume or assume what God will or won't do? You know, Scripture actually warns against this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
and our world even testifies to this, our actual experiences. Consider the last two years, right? God has been sovereignly in control of all events, everything that's been happening, and yet none of us would have expected the last two years to go the way that it has. He wills and he works for his good pleasure, even when we don't understand it. The entitlement of the earlier laborers shows itself in assuming the master's next move. And when he didn't do what they expected, it actually led to their complaining. So my question for you is, when was the last time that you complained? Maybe it was about what you ate for breakfast this morning. Or maybe it was where you had to park when you got to church, how far away from the church building. Or maybe it was earlier this week behind your boss's back. When was the last time that you complained? You know, I'm not a sociologist or anything, but I think that we live in a complaining culture. It comes all too easy, uh, not only in the secular culture or the world around us, but I'm even talking about in the church. Yet God's word is so clear on this. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things, hard things and easy things. Things that we want to do and things that we don't want to do. When we understand and when we don't understand, God's word commands God's people to do all things without grumbling. Which means to do so, it's actually a sin. Take a second to chew on that. Uh, complaining is a sin. We need to remember this. Right? These respectable sins, this respectable sin of complaining is, is actually an offense to God. And so we must see it and confess it and repent of it. Complaining, it implies that God has not provided all that we need. It implies that God is somehow stingy. Uh, it implies that God isn't enough like he says he is. Friends, grumbling is the language of the ungrateful. Uh, grumbling is the language of those who have not tasted grace. And we, the redeemed, have indeed tasted God's grace. Therefore, we, of all people, have no reason to grumble or complain. Friends, it is so easy. It is so easy to slip into a pattern of complaining. Yet what we have to remember is that complaining ultimately destroys both you and the church. Complaints are like bricks. Uh, with each one, you actually build a wall between yourself and the brothers and sisters that you are called to love. And when that wall gets so high, you, you become completely unable to see the gift and blessing that these brothers and sisters and this church as a whole is meant to be to you from God. Complaining, it's, it's like putting blinders on. It doesn't allow you to look left and, and right and see the grace that other church members are meant to be in your life. Friends, complaining is step one in creating division among God's people. So then how? How do we fight against grumbling, which is really a fight against pride? Well, the proud will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, so we fight with weapons of humility and thankfulness. Humility and thankfulness. And really, one begets the other, right? There were, the more we grow in humility, the more we increase in thankfulness for any and all that we have received. It's when we reflect on our salvation, the greatest gift that God has given us, that, that boasting mouths are silenced and true humility grows. Uh, humility is found at the cross. 
We grow in humility when we remember the truth that, that Jesus, the God-man, humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And it's, it's our sin. It's actually our sin that, that put him there. For the third hour labor and for the eleventh hour labor and everyone in between. When we take our eyes off of our salvation, we begin to forget just how amazing grace really is. Christian, what do you have that you did not receive? The Christian life is a living and breathing testimony of God's grace. We are monuments of God's grace to the watching world. We are fundamentally a people who know ourselves to deserve hell and yet have been given heaven. We are the prodigal who in our sin had squandered it all, but God in his grace has met us on the road and showered us with blessings in Christ that we could never earn on our own merit. Friends, remember your testimony often. Think back to when you first tasted grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not only that, but don't forget to praise God for his present faithfulness towards you. A practical way that I do this, uh, when I see God's grace in my life, I try to make sure I write it down. I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, I have an entire Google calendar on my phone entitled Ebenezer's. And whenever I see the Lord answer a long-awaited prayer request or, or a, kind of a standout moment of his grace toward me or my family, I add it to that calendar. And then I make sure to set the settings to where it notifies me annually so that next year when it rolls around, and on that, on that day, I'll get a notification reminding me of some way in which the Lord was faithful and gracious toward me and my family. And then I am freshly humbled by his kindness year after year after year. Please, consider doing that. Remind yourself, write down ways in which the Lord has been gracious to you. And so, so from the root of humility comes the fruit of thankfulness. Friends, thankful people are humble people. The easy area to draw your attention to would be your possessions or your family or your health, which we should all be thankful for. But instead, I want you to, to, you to consider this local church. Members of Oak Ridge Baptist Church, my family and I have been here for about 16 months now. Uh, but as each month passes, my heart grows in thankfulness for each and every one of you all. As one of your pastors, and I think I speak on behalf of the others as well, I'm thankful for things like your hunger for God's word. Sunday after Sunday, showing up eager to hear and receive God's word. I'm thankful for your welcoming and hospitable nature. Particularly as one of the newer pastors, my family has benefited tremendously from, from how hospitable you are as a church. I'm also thankful for your eagerness to meet practical needs, right? showing up for people in very practical ways. The amount of meals that get passed around this church is, is amazing. Uh, I'm thankful for the way older saints seek to disciple and pour into younger saints. And the way younger saints seek to support and uphold older saints. Friends, your spiritual in, in, uh, intentionality with your children, for example, for the many ways you, you sow gospel seeds in the lives of your children. Friends, I could keep going about the ways in which you all have grown me in humility and thankfulness. So church family, hear this. The Lord, by his grace, is working in and through this congregation. The Lord has been gracious to this church despite some difficult seasons. So, because of that, may we never presume upon his graciousness, but instead be drawn to thankfulness. A heart that is humbled by Christ's work on the cross is a heart that overflows with thankfulness. So, if you struggle 
to be thankful. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross where your greatest need was met. Humility and thankfulness combat entitlement and complaining. But not only do we see the surprising nature of God's grace, but we also see the sovereign nature of God's grace in verses 13 to 15. The sovereignty of this master is meant to represent the sovereignty of God. Let me read those verses for us one more time, starting in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And as we see God's sovereignty in the scriptures, this, this sovereignty on display in these verses, it's meant to produce something in us. Truth, excuse me, trust and praise to God and compassion for others. But before we begin to unpack this idea of God's sovereignty, I just want to draw your attention to, to one quick detail, which if we read too fast, we'll skip right over it. Notice the first words of the master's response. Friend. The indignation of the earlier laborers is met with kindness. We can't hurry by this. Referring to these uh, complaining laborers as friends speaks to God's disposition toward us in our unfounded indignation, in our grumbling over our circumstances. God has not punished us for failing to see his grace at all times. Instead, like the master with these entitled laborers, he actually meets us with affection. Can you see it? Everything about this interaction is actually upside down, according to worldly standards. Not only are people getting paid what they didn't deserve, but the master even addresses them in a way that they didn't deserve. Saints, this is, this is you and me. We are the Ephesians 2, dead in our sins, rebels, uh, spitting at the throne of the Almighty, where, whether we knew it or not. Friends, we were enemies of his, bound for a judgment that God would have been completely just to deliver. But God, out of his abundant mercy, was kind to us. We were, st we were still sinners when Christ died for us. You didn't deserve it. We were public enemy number one. And now, in Christ, he calls you friend. If you are in Christ, this is the beginning and the end of your story. It is Christ who rescued you. It is Christ who holds you fast. It is Christ who will bring you to glory all by his grace. Because of Christ, you are now a friend of God. Dwell on this truth daily. Never forget your standing before this holy judge. You know, we notice another key fact about the master in verses 14 and 15. He says, I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The master does what he pleases with what he owns. In this case, this is his money, which he promised to laborers that he chose. Like God, the master has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing unfair. So upon joining this church, every member signs the statement of faith. It's a list of statements that we believe and teach as a church. And our ninth statement is entitled Sovereign grace. It reads, we believe that it was the gracious purpose of God from all eternity 
to choose some people to be regenerated and saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. God's infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable purpose in salvation is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and, as, and is a most glorious display of God's sovereign mercy. Uh, the doctrine of sovereign grace is that God is absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. He has complete control over his creation, while at the same time dispensing that control graciously, giving grace to those who don't deserve it, as seen supremely in our salvation. And what's amazing is that God doesn't do this begrudgingly. God is pleased to be gracious with a sinful people like you and me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Not because we somehow have earned his pleasure, but because he is pleased with the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, a common rebuttal to this idea is, well, why doesn't God just save everybody? Friend, I can't answer that. But what I would encourage you to do is ask a different question. Why does a holy God save anybody? It is our sin that makes God's sovereignty necessary. And so for anyone here this morning who has not put their trust in Jesus, I want to be clear that this grace that I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes, it's for you too. It is for you too. It is free for you to have, to grasp. Jesus even now extends it to you if you would but trust in him. Turn from your sins and trust in him. Both the Bible and this world testify to our fallen nature, our total depravity. No, no one seek after God. Instead, we are all in rebellion toward him. Therefore, it must take an act of God's own divine choosing for any to be saved. There is no merit in us. There is no way for those who are spiritually dead to bring themselves to spiritual life. And this, my friends, is why sovereign grace is necessary. Because without it, all of humanity remains under the curse of Adam. Left to ourselves, we remain dead in our sins. But not only is his sovereign grace necessary, it's meant to produce something in us, a particular result. The remainder of that Article 9 in our Statement of Faith, it says, Sovereign grace, it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, gratitude, praise, love, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy and is the foundation of Christian assurance. When God, in his grace, has, uh, has been graciously sovereign towards us, he gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit brings forth fruit in the life of the believer. And so through the work of the Spirit, we begin to move from pride in what we have done to praise for what only God can do. We move from complaining about what we don't want to do to contentment in what God has given. We move from entitled and self-centered to evangelistic and concerned for others' spiritual good. We move from jealous at what others have to joy for what God has done for you and for others. We move from trusting in our own strength to leaning wholly on Jesus Christ. We move from boasting about ourselves to bragging about Christ. OBC family, sovereign grace is necessary if anyone 
is to be saved. But God knows his people are forgetful. So, in his kindness, he has given his church a regular corporate reminder of his grace toward us in the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake in at the end of this service. In this church-wide act together, we remember the grace that he has shown toward us in shedding the, the, the blood of his son on the cross for our sins, an act that has provided for our greatest need, an act entirely of grace. So our passage for this morning, if you didn't notice, it actually begins with the word for, which means that what came before it informs the meaning of the parable that we just walked through. Prior to Jesus giving this parable, the disciples had just witnessed a conversation between himself and a rich young man, a man who, according to the world's value system, would have had it all. And so, to correct the disciples' understanding of what is valued most in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus gives them this parable that we just walked through. Jesus wants the disciples and us to understand that the value system of the kingdom of heaven is based in grace. Verse 16, in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first last. Uh, Those who both see their need for God's grace and receive the grace that he provides in Christ. Uh, Those who abandon their own works and trust fully in the person and work of Jesus. Those who forego that which is temporal to gain that which is eternal. Those who would be foolish in the world's eyes. In the kingdom, they will be first. Church, God does not owe us salvation for something that we have done. Uh, He gives us salvation despite everything we've done. It's only by the merits of Christ that sinners like us uh, gain eternal life. God owes us nothing, yet he gives us everything in Christ. Grace, grace, God's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for your sovereign grace in salvation. Be glorified as we go out this week seeking to extend the same grace that we have received. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.